conversations from the front lines of marketing. This is B2B Growth. MJ, welcome into B2B Growth. This is going to be a lot of fun for, for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are the VP of marketing at Colab, and I have to say also on fire on LinkedIn recently. <laughs> Just so many posts that I think people are kind of talking about. So maybe I need to pick your brain on that too at some point. But love some of what you're you're talking about. And actually, the genesis of us talking today is a post that you made about ABM. And so I want to go there, but I'm just going to tell all of our listeners up front what I told you right before we started recording. My ADD is going to run the show today because there's a couple topics that I know marketers listening will want me to talk to you about. So first is that that post, basically you did a one day ABM campaign with your team and we'll break that down. And then the second thing is your discussion around media brands, your thinking around brand marketing, media marketing. And so we want to go there as well because you used our show, B2B Growth, as an example. So I think we could we could definitely have a good back and forth. Let's do a choose your own adventure. Which one do you want to talk about first, MJ? And we'll just go with that direction. Let's start with ABM. Okay. Starting with ABM. So I will preface this by saying we did an episode recently with our predictions for the next 12 months for 2023. And one of them was a massive resurgence in talk about ABM. And so then we have, since we made that prediction, I am constantly scouring LinkedIn for signals that that's happened. And your post about this happened right after we made that prediction. So I'm like, okay, that's a cool, just little signal because the comments that were flooding in and people were interested in it. And then Dave Gearhart recently said in exit five, the discussion has just massively gone in that direction. And he made a post about it. Like, isn't ABM this old thing? Why are people all talking about it? But I think it's so relevant this year specifically because budgets are tighter and people are really thinking through how do we get strategic about the accounts we go after. So I loved the creativity in this. Set up for us just what you did with your team. And then I can even read through. I have the LinkedIn post pulled up here. But I'd love to hear it from you, like with the origins of this idea. Yeah. So Collab has a Collab team week twice a year. So everybody goes to Newfoundland where Collab is based and we all spend a week together in the office. So this actually happened in our most recent team week, which was in December. Um, and it was the last day of team week before the company holiday party. And I don't know what got into me that day, but I like walked into the office in the morning and I was like, we're going to ship a campaign today. Like <laughs> we had started it, we're going to ship one today. And so we decided to basically do an ABM play where we picked five target accounts. Um, in this case, all five target accounts were from the same industry vertical, wind turbines. And we started by building a one page messaging and positioning document. So like me, uh, one of our SDRs and our copywriter, like all sat around a table and we like started opening these companies annual reports and like skimming through them and pulling out nuggets. And, um, obviously we had our own like messaging docs and value proposition stuff to go off of, but like, how can we pull out stuff that is clearly relevant to these companies from publicly available sources and then map that back to our value proposition with the goal of like building a uh, solutions page for our website as a, as a starting point. So 
each of our solutions pages on our website has three or four kind of value proposition modules on them where we position a specific capability of Colab to deliver benefits that somebody might be looking for if they they care about this solution. So in this case, instead of using the solutions lens, we just use the lens of like what these five companies might care about that are all in the same vertical. So we picked out like various things that wind turbine companies might grapple with. Like one thing that kept coming up in the annual reports is they have uh, manufacturing facilities all over the world that make different parts and components of a wind turbine. As you can imagine, this pretty big complex thing to assemble. So like the blades are made one place, the transformers made another place, and it all has to come together. And sometimes the engineering team that works on that product is not co-located with the team that manufactures it. So, you know, you can anticipate that there might be issues that come up in production that need to be resolved by an engineer. And so one of the ways we position Colab is your engineers can more effectively uh, communicate with their manufacturing counterparts to resolve production issues more quickly, even in kind of a globalized manufacturing production force. So we did that two or three other times, and then we built this landing page that was probably 8 a.m. to noon. uh, (laughs) We'll sit around tables and discuss and look at this stuff and do messaging by thinking for a lot longer than four hours. So I appreciate that you guys just, the information's out there. Let's just consolidate it, get it as good as we can and kind of move on to the next step. Yep. So that was like 8 a.m. to noon. And then maybe noon to two, we had two things like happening simultaneously. So I said the original group of three was myself, one of our SDRs and our copywriter. And then the second part of this, we handed off the copy doc to our digital marketing manager, um, who is a man of many skills, but he handles all of like our marketing ops, builds everything in Webflow, and um, does all of our SEO strategy. So we mm-hmm. handed off the copy doc to him, and he started building the page in Webflow. And then um, at the same time, I started working with our agency to produce creatives that we could run on LinkedIn to drive traffic to this new landing page. And so we probably had all of those creatives done within like two or three hours. And part of the way we went faster here is we actually went back into our bank of old creatives that we had run in previous campaigns and also just pulled out anything that we thought was also relevant based on the messaging doc here. Yep. And then in some cases, we had like old creative templates that we could kind of switch up the copy on a little bit, maybe drop in some new images and make that all of a sudden refreshed and relevant for the customers that we were going to run it to. So we might have made like two or three new creatives and kind of recycled nine or nine or 10 old ones. Um, so that gave us like a nice pool of 12, 13 creatives to run on LinkedIn. And then three o'clock to four o'clock, um, we built the campaigns, actually our agency built the campaigns in LinkedIn. So they picked those five accounts and then they slotted in all the target job titles for people within those accounts. And so um, by the end of the day, those uh, LinkedIn ads were running and in front of people. And if you actually compare the performance leading metrics only, so like click-through rate, engagement rate, if you compare that performance to like more of our broad-based marketing that goes to audiences of like 200,000 people as opposed to five accounts, the click-through rate was something like six times better. And the cost efficiency is like two and a half or three times better. So it, my takeaway there is, while it remains to be seen, uh, what the downstream pipeline impacts of this kind of motion are, it is uh, by far the most effective way to get targeted messaging in front of the right people quickly. Seriously. Okay. So 
I guess the question, first question would be, if you were to compare this to other ABM, maybe where you just have more time and you're thinking, where, where do you typically spend more time? Because you're shipping this in a day. Was there any sort of hiccup where you're like, I, I wish we had more time here or I would go back and do this? Or did you feel like, hey, just for the fact of this is great momentum to push us to really try something, you feel like overall it was worth it? I think the momentum is definitely worth it. I think a lot of the things that marketers think take a ton of time don't actually take that much time. Like I would say one of the biggest things contributing to the amount of time it takes to launch a campaign is just like when people do those specific pieces of work. So I talked about it in terms of like the 8 a.m. to 12 p.m., the 12 p.m. to 2 p.m., 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., right? In like regular world, oftentimes it would be like, the first part happens on Monday and maybe like, you know, nobody has four hours on a Monday. So you have to do like an hour on Monday, an hour on Wednesday, like an hour on Tuesday next week. Okay. All of a sudden now this is, we're seven or eight days in. And then maybe you can't get into the web developer schedule until the end of the week or the following week, especially, I mean, we have the luxury of having someone who can build web pages on our team, but like not everybody does that. So people outsource it. So maybe that adds another week or two. And then Again, like a lot of people responded in the comments section of that LinkedIn post, like how how did you get your agency to just like do this drop for you, like and yeah. just drop everything? So we have a really good relationship with them, but they're also just like a pretty scrappy group, and I think they liked the idea, uh, like like the challenge of what we we're doing. But yeah, like most of the time, you wouldn't be able to get your agency to like turn around creative for you in ninety minutes and like launch a campaign on a Friday afternoon. So then that might add like two weeks. And so all of a sudden, like what what can be done in a day is taking you five weeks just because of scheduling complications. And I don't like say that to trivialize it because that's real, right? Like in, teams often are juggling multiple priorities. But if you have an opportunity to like take advantage of the momentum and line everything up perfectly like we did with this team week, it is a cool way to like show everyone what's possible in a short amount of time. Yeah, I think... The fact that you picked five target accounts makes it easier because it's a smaller number. It's very specific going after that niche. I also think the fact that you, when you talk about made 12 LinkedIn ad creatives, I put that in quotes because not because you didn't do that, but because you're able to look back and say, what's most relevant that we've already created. And I do think as marketers and as creatives, we can get in this mindset of, we got to create new for this next campaign instead of thinking what's best performing or what's old that could be new here or used again here. And that seems to be like a strategic piece of making this thing work. What was the, as you look forward, are you planning on trying something like this again because of the results you saw? What would be your advice if someone's going like, I know even for us at Sweetfish, we didn't end up doing it. But James, our CEO, was like messaging us being like, we should do this. And it just doesn't make sense right now to do that. So I'm sure there's people out there curious or wanting to try it. Any words of advice for the, those people? Yeah. So to your first question, we have made this like a regular part of our marketing plan in what I would call maybe a more sustainable way, right? Because like you can't do that kind of thing every day. Your team would, it would drive people crazy. But we did obviously take the the results very seriously in terms of both cost efficiency and um, the amount of people that were engaging within our ideal customer profile group. And so what we're doing now is we're doing these um, in a one-week spread format instead of a one-day spread format. And we are actually partnering with our account executives. 
So each of our account executives has 10 to 12 strategic accounts, and they are responsible for creating an account plan. So they do a bunch of research on this account, what the people might care about, like who the key stakeholders are. And so we're tapping into that research to like fuel that messaging and positioning, one page messaging positioning doc piece of the equation. So we'll do that on Monday. And then we want to get that done by the end of the day on Monday. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we start, we do the copy for the landing page, then we build the landing page. And then at the same time, do creative in parallel and then launch the campaign on Friday. Um, so that just gives the team a little bit more flexibility to like work in day-to-day priorities. And also because uh, we are now working again more asynchronously with everybody remote. And so we are going to do six of those in Q1 of this year. And uh, we are going to be wrapping up our first one this week. Wow. Well, I have to report on how that goes for trying to run it six times. I think there's a week is such a good sprint for momentum just in a little bit of a different way. You can go deeper on your research, obviously, as well in that type of environment. I wonder, as you think of ABM more largely, because it is now just sort of everywhere and being talked about again, is there something that you see done wrong consistently when it comes to account-based marketing or things that I always think of it as, I th- it feels like people started hating on ABM because they saw so many campaigns done halfway. Like it, it's only half-baked. You didn't go as far as you could into research or personalization or all of these different things. And then we've all been on the receiving end of a half-baked campaign where it just doesn't resonate with us because it still just feels like not well done marketing and like you don't care really about our problems. You care about selling me your solution. So anything that you see specifically done wrong in ABM that people should uh, be paying attention to as it's now everywhere being talked about? Yeah, so Terminus created this category of ABM. And I, to be totally transparent, I don't understand what Terminus does in a lot of detail, but I do understand that it's like um, the, the main tactic you're running when you're using Terminus to coordinate your ABM efforts is display advertisement, I believe. And then there's all these other ABM vendors that like some of them make personalized landing pages, et cetera, et cetera. And, but everybody calls themselves like an ABM technology provider. And so I think people may make the mistake of like, if I buy this technology and do the stuff that the technology allows me to do, then I'm doing ABM and I don't need to like worry about anything else that might go behind ABM. Like in our case, we aren't using any technology, but we're still doing ABM. So I think you gotta like, actually, I don't have any problem with using ABM technology, like by all means, but you can do ABM without using any technology and you can like not accomplish anything with the technology, right? So that's like a risk. So I think like, it's interesting. I only recently learned that Terminus like created the category of ABM. The first time I came across the term ABM, I was like, oh yeah, that like, it instantly made sense to me. Like, of course you would market to a specific group of accounts. Like it's just another way of segmentation. It's like a fundamental of marketing, right? Choose a segment, make yourself relevant to them. So it resonated with me instantly. I didn't even know technology existed. So I was like, all right, how am I going to do this ABM thing working from first principles? I was like, well, I know I'll like pick some accounts to like narrow the field of focus. I'll like research those accounts. I'll make some messaging and then I'll do some kind of campaign to get the messaging in front of the people. And so to me, like 
those activities are what ABM is. And obviously technology can facilitate that, but some people I think get get lost by over-prioritizing the technology rather than working from first principles. That's great. Well, I, I encourage everyone to go check out that post. I also always think that the comments are really insightful. In fact, I'm not going to remember if it was this post or the next one we're about to talk about, MJ, but you dropped a link to, oh, it's in the next one we're going to talk about. But someone was asking about a strategic narrative and you dropped a link. And I, I went and looked at that and I went, oh my gosh, I'm saving that for later. So it, a lot of that back and forth in the comments is where the gold is. So I encourage people to go, go read it. Okay. So the other thing I want to pick your brain on, and this is switching gears, but I can actually start and give a good crossover with the ABM stuff we just talked about. I want to talk to you about media brands and brand marketing. And the posts that you made basically compared the two and different ways of going about this. Obviously, you have a really good perspective from the Refine Labs side of things, and you can bring that to, to this conversation. But I want to set up with some context. I think for B2B growth, we're in an interesting pivot right now. And you spoke to something that I was like, man, this will be this will be fascinating. So for us and for B2B growth, like I only came on the team about a year ago. And before that, we looked at this podcast for years as what we would call a content-based networking play. So oh, we're going to have MJ on and essentially it's what we, it's account-based networking. I mean, it's like, I don't know how else to say it. So you talk to somebody and whether they end up becoming a client of Sweetfish or not, you're making all these connections with different people and you're having them on your show. You're shining a spotlight on their expertise. And that's something that a lot of business podcasts do. They build their network via their show, right? Times have also evolved and changed. And the types of people that you would have had on a podcast a few years ago are now so in demand or they're actively trying to go on shows just to get on a podcast. <laughs> so you, d we have even changed our tune. And I have James Cook right behind me, content-based networking, and we're changing our thinking on a lot. So I say all that to say, We've been in podcasting for like six years, 2000 plus episodes and have ridden all these different waves to get here. But I don't think that that's the ABM type play is really where we are anymore or what we would say a media brand is. And then you have, and this is where I want your input, the brand marketing side where you gave the Refined Labs example. When I look at them, I actually think that they are a person, I think Chris Walker is a personal brand that got built to the point because of his content where now they're actually in the last little bit in a pivot where people care about their content maybe more than they care about Chris because they have all these different podcasts and different things they're doing. But I actually think they were a personal brand that then built into more of a media brand. So with all of that long-winded take, MJ, what are your thoughts on when I say that? Or even do you have questions about how B2B growth does things that would maybe get this kind of kicked off and then we can go go from there? Yeah. So um, I wrote a post a couple of days ago, which started out by just saying, creating useful content is not a strategy. And I used to think that simply creating useful content and getting eyeballs as a result of that was like, that's content marketing. So at, like at Firetrace, which was the first place that I became a VP of marketing, we just produced like all of this content about 
manufacturing and machining, which is like one of the segments that Firetrace sold into. And we got attention. Like we ran this webinar one time where we invited two machinists that became entrepreneurs and started their own shop. And we had hundreds of machinists come to that webinar. But like, I always struggled at the time because I was like, I don't think like these people paying attention to us is necessarily going to drive growth for the company. But I couldn't like see the path forward to doing something better, right? And so fast forward to today, I think a lot of that is still true. A lot of brands see Refine Labs, for example, and they say, and, and they hear Chris Walker say, like, everyone should be doing a podcast. He doesn't say that exactly. That's like a misrepresentation of, of his words. But like, he encourages people to think about podcasting, to think about episodic content. And he has a wildly successful podcast. So people are like, if I create a podcast, like, I will generate sales opportunities. And I think you've seen this wave of small podcasts launching, which are mostly one-to-one interview format. And I I think a lot of those podcasts are probably failing to generate sales opportunities. And like a lot of work goes into a podcast. I've done one, like my my own podcast. And like I've worked at companies that have podcasts and um, it's not a trivial amount of work. And so sometimes I, I sort of wonder like if you reinvested that time that you spend producing the podcast into something else, would you generate more results? And the answer is maybe, right? But what you ultimately need is a clear strategy on how to convert that attention that you may get into a sales opportunity. And so in my opinion, I didn't actually address ABM in this post, but we can talk about that more. In my opinion, the two most obvious playbooks are number one, brand marketing. So you like have a strategic narrative, like a set of beliefs that your company operates on that are aligned to what your product does naturally, right? You build the product in response to beliefs. Like every company starts with an idea or a belief and then a product gets built around it. And you can use long form episodic content to elaborate on this point of view. And if people find that interesting, then, and, and you could produce it in an interesting way, then a lot of people will consume the content and like start to align themselves with your point of view, which naturally leads some of them to reach out and try to use your product. So that's what happens at Refine Labs, right? Chris talks about like dark social and self-reported attribution and like all of these trends that his thinking is so compelling and like it really changes how people work. And because of that, like a lot of people just go and use that information and do it themselves in their business. But there's a subset of those people who are like, I want help or I want to do this faster. And they reach out to Refine Labs and Refine Labs gets business from that. That's not the same as interviewing a bunch of guests one-to-one, right? Because when you interview guests one-to-one, you don't control the narrative. And so you can't use a one-to-one interview podcast to promote your strategic narrative. And so what are you doing instead? You might be doing an ABM play, but alternatively, I think you could do what I would call like a media company play where like you make these interviews so interesting that people want to listen to them. And then you basically give free advertising back to your company. But the execution gap here is like, I see a lot of companies that do that and they put all the work into like creating a great podcast and then they don't like put any ads for their company. And so to me, I'm like, you're wasting, you're wasting this opportunity. But so that's like a small thing. People could just put the ads in it because people don't mind if you ask them to have a look at your product, if you were consistently 
driving value. Like <laughs> Don't put it in the intro. Don't put a little splash. Like Be about the content and then add your mid-roll ad for your business or figure out a way to put it in. But yeah, don't like, give me the minute-long intro to your podcast. <laughs> That's a pitch Yeah, yeah. You. And there's there's like a good execution, a smooth execution and a, and a you know, rockier execution of this for sure. But like, you know, media companies, like you, basically what you're, you should think of it as a media, are you building a media company for your brand? Well, a media company like doesn't just make content because they want to be good people and like make interesting stuff for people and they know the world is bored. Like they do it because ultimately they're going to be able to sell ads to other people. So if you're other brands, right? And so if you're going to invest serious time and energy into uh, turning your podcast into like something that resembles what a medium which company might create, then you should be taking advantage of that as a brand by selling ads back to your company for free. Yes. Okay. So I am nodding in agreement the entire time you're talking. I also think you've done a really good job of reflecting back to us where we currently are in our pivot. Now I want to just kind of express a little bit of where I feel there's, I think there's a little bit of a need for clarification. So I want to get your take on this. But when I think of the media company playbook that we're starting to evangelize into the market, talk about consistently, harp on, it's actually not what we've been doing for the past five years fully. Because I actually don't think you can build a media company doing the ABM conversations that we used to do. And I'm not even hating on that thing. If you know that that's why you're running your podcast and you go all in on that, we have some clients that do that and they're winning and it's working. And like, we could prove that out. That's why James wrote content-based networking. But I think once you flip into the media company side of things, you actually end up a lot with what you were talking about in the brand marketing playbook. We've gone through all this work to like establish our stronger point of views. How can we in interview shows be at, even as hosts, bring up our point of view more often? And how can we add other, what we would call just media content franchises in that, that don't just have guests. So Monday, my conversation with you would come out, right? Wednesday, we do echo chamber where it's just me and Dan and James, internal Sweetfish people discussing something we saw on LinkedIn that we find interesting, giving our take. We're going to have content franchises literally helping you build a media company. And that'll be with Tyler Lazard. So then they've already done this media play. They're ahead of us in this game, branching it out from your company, having two separate things and really it becoming a top of funnel play, but you still have a strong POV like any media company would. You're not just doing interviews. So I think you did a really good job of showing both. And then for me, it was also compelling because it's, I think we're in the middle of a shift that's really interesting to talk about. And with the rise of the number of interview style shows, that's just not a differentiated model anymore. And that's actually, I think, why the interview growth grew so much is we were one of the first in this market that could make it work. So we can have the consistent conversations and people still listen to them, while we also know that's not the long-term trajectory of how you build a media company. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So one thing that's worth pointing out is like what you, what you're doing. It sounds like you can have multiple playbooks running inside of the same show. You just have to be quite clear for every episode. What playbook does this episode support? So you might continue having, and I'm not suggesting this is your strategy, but you might continue having the occasional ABM episode where 
you're inviting someone who you'd like to sell to to start to build a relationship with them. And so you know, like the the guest on this show is someone that is in our ideal customer profile. We're inviting them because we think they could benefit from our services. And that's the point of this conversation. Equally, you might have another episode like the one you described where you all just jam out on something you saw on LinkedIn. And that's a brand marketing play because you completely control the narrative and can express your point of view. And then equally, like you might invite someone like me or someone probably more popular than me um, onto the show, like just because people might want to hear from that person. And also because they have a large personal brand that can share the show. And that would be more of a media play. And like, maybe you'll insert a mid-roll ad about Sweetfish into the middle of this episode, right? And you know that this episode is for that purpose. So I don't see any problem with having a show that does all three. I just think that sometimes people have shows that do none of the three and they need to think about what the strategy is before continuing to execute on a on a channel that frankly is is a pretty big time commitment. Like it's a it can be high reward, but it's not something to like rush into blindly. And I also think in the media company side of things, it doesn't stop with just podcasts. So like that might be your intro into it, but I've seen people do it with LinkedIn pages, right? You think of marketing millennials and like they were basically just posting memes before the podcast even really got huge. It was shareable memes that made that a, really a successful media play. And then you could also get into this with video through like a YouTube page. You could get into this through a newsletter. But ultimately, if I'm thinking about building a media brand, I'm probably not. I, I can't claim that we're a media brand until we're in multiple channels. You, you're a podcast until you're more than a podcast, right? So you have aspirations of being more. And that's where I think the media play gets more interesting is because then you have these interactions where you're, I'm in your inbox, you're, I'm in your ears because you're listening to our conversations regularly. So now our points of view are really, we are probably starting to align and we see the world in, with our audience in some significant way. And that starts to really translate down funnel downstream into, oh, if you ever think about starting a media brand, you're probably going to work with us. So there is this long-term play within the media strategy. And that's where I'd love your take on what Chris is doing. Do you think that Chris Walker and his play was more about, I think, I feel like it was just a personal brand play. People really liked his IP and that turned into what we see now. I don't think that they really, yeah, the way I think of it, personal brand, product brands, media brands would be the three content buckets we talk about. We're trying to move into media brand and I feel like he's a personal brand that is moving into something like, well, I guess we could debate because they also have like, what is the vault? Almost feels like it's becoming a product brand because now you can pay for their content. So <laughs> again, MJ, I'm sorry to do this, but this is just like, what are your thoughts on that? Looking at the evolution of Refine Labs, how, how do you see that that playing out? Do you see it more as personal growing into a media brand or where do you see that going? Yeah. So, I mean, no doubt that the main distribution channel for Refine Labs was Chris's LinkedIn profile in the beginning. Now the podcast has, I don't know, probably 50 or 60,000 subscribers. So you could argue that the podcast is a pretty, pretty big distribution channel in and of itself, regardless of how many people see the content on LinkedIn as well. But I think part of what started me down this track of like understanding the different playbooks, the brand marketing playbook and the media company playbook is reflecting on what we are doing at Refine Labs, which is very, very successful 
and comparing that to like what else I saw in the marketplace. And what else I saw in the marketplace was a lot of like mediocre execution of the one-to-one interview playbook, maybe for ABM, but like I think a lot of a lot of times people invite guests that just like have a big following or like are impressive, but like that they're not going to sell to. So you're actually mis-executing the ABM playbook there. And I was like, what is different? And what I put my finger on is like, Chris talks all the time on the podcast. Like there's very few guests. It's like he, and I mean, Chris can pull this off because he's a great speaker and because he constantly comes up with new, amazing ideas and IP, right? So yes, you can't highlight that enough. Anyone can start a podcast. Not everyone has a strong enough POV, is a good enough communicator. Uh, in his case, they went pet, you also went heavy into video and micro content. So that means you have to be good on camera. There's so many pieces of this puzzle that work for Refine Labs because of Chris. Yeah. And I think state of demand gen and Chris's profile continue to be the brand marketing playbook, right? It's a, it's at the heart of it is a point of view. And he's just like the Refine Labs has a great infrastructure for turning that into content on lots of different channels. It's actually something we're trying to replicate at Colab with our own CEO. However, they also have other podcasts, as you pointed out. Um, they have Stack and Growth now. And I think that's just an experimental podcast right now. So they have one like fully operational brand marketing focused podcast. And I think they're still experimenting with Stack and Growth along their, their, their drinking their own Kool-Aid <laughs> doing the revenue R&D. So the way they talk about it is there's different phases to developing a new motion. And I think uh, Stack and Growth is in one of the earlier phases and eventually it will crystallize what exactly the playbook they're running with that particular podcast is. And um, I think that will be the momentum and the flywheel that they need to turn that into like a fully operational program at scale. Yeah. So to me, when... I guess just because of the different language, when I look at what they're doing, ultimately, I guess I would put some of it in in the product brand bucket because we see it as three content marketing motions and tell me if, if we're missing something, but we would say personal brand, like a Chris, product brand, which is what we see a lot of times in B2B. Oh, we have a company blog. Oh, we have a, this is this is our content marketing, but your content marketing is really just describing what your product does, right? And then there's media brand, which is the idea would be two completely separated out channels that you can exactly like what you said, run ads on, but it's its own thing. And you're do you're talking to what the ICP is interested in as a whole, not just what your service does, but for us B2B marketers, we can talk about anything within B2B marketing, have guests on, also have internal conversations, grow a media channel that then down funnel, we believe and see that it turns into. So I think it's interesting what Chris is doing because I think it's a bit of a cross of personal and product. And then when they've done multiple podcasts, now it seems like media as well. I want your opinion on because you're saying you're kind of running what Chris did now at Colab. So what's your thinking there? And because it is a heavy lift, you clearly still see the benefit of content. So so take us through what boxes you needed to check for that to be the right strategy. Yeah. So I think it's important to not try to have too many early stage programs cooking at the same time. So we really just started 
down this path this quarter in earnest. And prior to that, we were focused more on product marketing and then kind of scaling that product marketing out through specifically LinkedIn paid ads as a channel and then conferences, which was sort of plugged into brand marketing, but like that we're going to really plug into brand marketing now that we're making brand marketing more priority. But basically what we're going to do is first, we have to get good and consistent at generating those fascinating points of views and intellectual property. So that doesn't happen overnight, nor do you need to do it at a super high frequency. That's one thing that I've kind of reflected on and pinpointed. For example, Chris came up with Dark Social like June 2021. He came up with self-reported attribution maybe in the fall, like October. And he still talks about those two things all the time, right? So if you have a really juicy insight that took a long time to kind of crystallize, uh, you can continue to talk about that for uh, you know 12 months, two years, what have you. And actually what you'll notice about Chris is like, he'll sometimes like be talking about something and, and be like, I've said this before, but I've never been able to articulate it like this, right? And, and so what you can see happening there in real time is he's getting better at talking about this stuff because he has so much practice talking about it. I think brands in general are sort of afraid to repeat themselves, but... If you have a truly unique insight that can change the way people work, you can continue to talk about that insight in all kinds of different ways. And in fact, it's actually great for your CEO to get better and better and better at talking about it. So what are we focused on now? We're focused on figuring out how to generate those unique insights. And then we're going to do like one a quarter and we're going to make it a keynote address where we present the insights. That'll give us 60 minutes of content, 60 minutes of content. Yes, we will repost it to the podcast, but we will also chop it up into video clips that will write articles about it and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm way more confident that all of those pieces of content are going to be good because we've really invested in making the original piece of content something very insightful with a lot of IP. Yep. I like that. The temptation is always to make the IP that you're creating too close to the product that it just becomes product marketing. So I will give that little caveat that even if you're running this type of play, the reason that what, let's say a Chris is saying resonates is because we've all experienced something like dark social, or we can all get behind self-reported attribution. And I don't need to go buy something from Refine Labs to make that applicable in my setting. So there is something to be said there that I think people get wrong is, oh, well, yeah, our company has points of view. We're we're helping solve a problem that you have, but there's something unique about creating IP that's bigger than just the the problem you solve. Yeah, I think it's a great litmus test what you just pointed out there like could someone take this information and implement it whether your product is listed or not? If yes, and your product maybe makes it easier or faster or more consistent, then you probably have a unique point of view or insight. Well, this has been really fun and a, a fascinating conversation. I know we, we went in two different places, but I'm, I'm glad that we were able to cover both in this episode. I think it's helpful for people. And I know much of our audience is thinking about both because we've done a lot of conversations on ABM and I know people are thinking about it. And then on the content side, we know content is ever evolving. And it's definitely one of those things where media brands are just being talked about all the time. We want to help B2B companies get better at content because we've all seen enough crappy content for our lifetime. So 
MJ, thanks so much for stopping by B2B Grove. We really appreciate your time and, and, and your insight. Thank you very much for having me, Benji. Well, you can connect with MJ over on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find these posts as well. I'll put them in the show notes so you can check them out. And again, like I mentioned, the comments are the gold mine. So go read through those and uh, interact there. And then you can connect with me as well over on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Talk about marketing, business, and, and life. And thank you for sticking with B2B Growth as a source for marketing advice and these fun conversations. For all things B2B Growth, you can go to b2bgrowthshow.com. Remember, commodity content is the enemy, affinity over awareness, and the goal isn't more content, it's quality content. We're out. B2B Growth is brought to you by the team at Sweetfish Media. Here at Sweetfish, we produce podcasts for some of the most innovative brands in the world. And we help them turn those podcasts into micro videos, LinkedIn content, blog posts, and more. We're on a mission to produce every leader's favorite show. Want more information? Visit sweetfishmedia.com.